Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Real quick warning before you listen to the episode today, if you haven't seen the latest Game of Thrones, you might want to hold off until after you've seen the most recent episode. Colin does kind of drop a little bit of a spoiler in the middle of this episode. Hi everyone, welcome to the Financial Foresight Podcast. Today we have a whole gang together, which is great. Last week Dwight was out on vacation, so Dwight, thanks for being here. Let's chat on the Uber IPO, talked about as the year of the unicorn, and as we've seen, there's a lot of high-profile IPOs coming out. Any thoughts? Guys on IPOs in general, Uber, Lyft, Pinterest, have at it. Well, we always use these acronyms, IPO. So I guess maybe first thing, IPO, it just stands for Initial Public Offering. And that's just a fancy way of saying a new company that you can now buy shares for whatever platform you're using to buy stocks. So that's as as complex as it is. So Uber, now you can go buy some shares in it. Really, I think IPOs are always way more hyped up than they should be. That's just my my take. There's there's definitely some opportunities to earn money at the beginning of these, but like from a structural perspective, they kind of are the wild west of investing as far as that remains, where like the most speculation occurs, right? when companies make big announcements anyway, and an IPO definitely qualifies as a big announcement. My, my take is that I'm always a little bit afraid to bring them up with clients or those sorts of things, mostly because they're kind of the most untested ground that a company is ever going through. Well, and so even more than that, it's like, <clears throat> especially these ones that are um, in the public quite a bit, like an Uber, for example, is it's kind of a household name, Lyft, Pinterest, all these other ones, you know, Jewel. You know, there's plenty of other IPOs or companies that go public um, that don't quite get nearly as much fanfare. But yeah, these ones that just are in the public eye, they just, yeah, it's almost like gambling. Well, and I think part of it is we all love the service of Uber and Lyft, but that doesn't necessarily mean we want to buy the stock. Similar to the notion that like, you know, your brother-in-law might be a CPA or a, a roofer, but you don't necessarily have to hire them. You know, Uber raised $25 billion and it's not even going to be profitable till 2024. And it's a big maybe. So why on earth would you want to buy a company that's just burning through cash? And then if you look at it, there was a really good article put out by Ben Carlson from Ritholtz Wealth Management on his blog, A Wealth of Common Sense, where he talked about kind of the downfall of the popular IPO, how they have a lot of huge flameouts. And there's really been two big winners. He wrote it in 2017, talking about Facebook and Alibaba. But a lot of times you'll see initially the first day, maybe it'll pop. But then within six months, you're really going to see a lot of these names trade lower. And the reason being is that there's something called the float, which basically means how, how many shares there are to trade. And there's not very much. And then once the internal employees and early investors get through what's called a lockup period, they can sell their shares to then realize those gains and maybe diversify. So if you've worked at Uber for a long time, your entire net worth is tied up in Uber stock and you're just waiting to sell it so that you can realize some gains. Yes, you're gonna pay a ton of taxes, but then you can go buy that nice house even I in there in San Francisco. 
A lot of times, if you're really big on an IPO, think about just waiting till after that lockup period. It can be 90 to 180 days. Yes, there's always FOMO. Yes, there's always the, well, Google didn't go down and it was a great IPO and it just took off forever. You'll always have that. But if you just give yourself a little time, don't necessarily have to buy right at the beginning. Yeah. And similar to the conversation we had last episode about diversification, the obvious trade-off with buying at an IPO is that you're only buying one company, right? So you're buying one particular stock, which means, again, like we've said, it's akin to gambling. It can go up, down, stay the same, and you will have no reasonable basis for determining which it will be. And with Uber, you know, specifically, there are, of course, a lot of opinions about how they treat their employees and things that are out there that are influencing the stock price. So employees is a strong word, by the way. Yeah, employees is a strong word. They're basically contractors, so. This would have to just be an absolute nightmare if your job were to uh, be making trades on these IPOs. Like if you're a mutual fund manager or some type of actively trade or active trader trying to price this stuff out and they're not going to be profitable for years and years, like tech companies that are just running at massive deficits but just have millions of users kind of relatively new to the scene and i mean i'm not going to like speak on to it whether you should be buying selling or otherwise but just uh making the comment that this is a really interesting thing how something can be valued you know the largest taxi service or, or transportation service doesn't own one taxi you know similar to the airbnb and just this whole platform industry is just uh, really kind of changing the game here. Yeah, and that's a great point, Colin, from the standpoint of they're very asset light. They don't have anything from like property or plants or equipment. It, it is purely something of its users, its eyeballs, its whatever, which is akin to the dot-com bust and crash in a way where they were valuing all these companies on different metrics than kind of what is the quote-unquote traditional way to value companies. So it is very interesting. Well, they're part of new business models, right? Similar to the dot-com bubble, like, or whatever you want to call it. We just didn't really have a metric for valuing the income ability from websites at the time. So like these websites were just being purchased or company, internet companies were just being purchased based on the future potential for revenue, but nobody had really successfully monetized just a pure website at the time. The advertising dollars weren't there. Now it's pretty easy to say, okay, this is a blog and it has this many readers, and so this is how much money it's going to make. But that just wasn't the case back then, and it's similar with tech companies that have millions of users on an application, but they're not converting that into profits right now. It's like, well, there's probably ways to do that. We just don't really know how many users is enough to guarantee that your company can run at its current structure, right? In a way, I feel like we just sound like a bunch of, you know, old timer millennials that are like, oh, these dang companies that don't make any money. Blah, blah, blah. Like they are fantastic businesses and have made, you know, a lot of newly minted millionaires or will soon when they're able to sell their shares. So it is doing a lot of positives from that standpoint and developing and pushing um, technology forward, as you mentioned, just similar like it was, you know, 20 years ago. Well, we, we do sound like a bunch of uh, old, old hags here getting off my lawn IPO damn it doesn't even make any money <laughs> i think uh just sticking with that notion uh i if if i had a client come to me and say hey i'm really interested in this or just like the weed stocks or bitcoin or anything same advice it's like hey if you know you really gotta scratch your fancy here and buy some because it's just something you want to write home about try to do it with you know at least less than five percent of your overall portfolio i don't really view ipos ever as a wealth building tool 
uh, it's really just uh, uh, kind of adding to just this change that, you know, we're, we're just seeing, you know, a hundred years ago, people wanted faster horses and then they came out with this automobile. And now we're talking about, you know, potentially Ubers as your number one source of transportation someday. And, you know, next thing will be autonomous cars and the world just keeps changing. Um, as long as you can c continue to hold and own the, the broad base index and being able to be a part of this growing and prospering economy, um, you're going to get your share of the pie. Get off my lawn. <laughs> no, but I think there's a good point, though, of like when we're buying stuff here, not just stuff, but <clears throat> what are you actually buying and investing in? You know, are we speculating? Are we, you know, so at the end of the day, it's like you're buying a company, buying equity, you're buying a piece of that company. And there are should be some fundamentals that make sense. Like, would you want to invest in this because it makes any lick of sense versus just hoping that something's going to get lucky and, and you know again that's really more of a speculative play so i do think sometimes you kind of get caught up of this the quote stock market being this um theoretical thing and it's like no you're really like investing in companies that really should be providing some sort of actual return rather than just getting caught up in the hype uh, just because it's the it's on the wall street journal Page That's a good point, Dwight. And you think about it just like running a household. Like if you consistently are spending more than you make, you're going to run into issues. And it's the same way with a company. If you continue to burn through cash and aren't making any revenue, like how long is that company going to be around until people finally get fed up of just saying, here's my money. I'm going to hope that you eventually can pay me back with these tremendous gains. Now they're going to kind of turn around and say, hey, you're supposed to give some of that back to me and let's see this thing grow. So similar to household, again, you have to budget and be responsible and, and have some sort of semblance of cash flow and not just outflow. Cool. Any other thoughts on IPOs, guys, or do we want to switch on and move on to Tweet of the Week? Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Okay, so for those of you listening for the first time, what we do is we randomly select one of us to talk about a tweet or something else interesting we found on the internet. And basically the way that this goes is we use random.org, which is a random number generator site that gets as close to random as you can reasonably get with software. So today we have Isaiah's. Ooh, so this is a little different just from the standpoint of I save a lot of tweets, but um, this is one I've been thinking about. And it's from Jeff Lewis, who I do not follow. I honestly is the only tweet I've ever liked of his. It is journaling with pen and paper each night for 10 minutes or so before bed is the single most positive sleep quality invention I've implemented in my life. 10x better than meditation. The reason I bring this up is, and I've heard it from others, and I can't give credit where credit is due. We are very creative right as we are drifting off to sleep. I think of so many things like, oh, I want to do that, or oh, I should think about maybe saying that, or writing about this, or putting this into practice. And so having just something there to scratch an idea on, instead of opening your phone and like waking back up. I've implemented that based on that tweet and I think it has been helpful with me remembering some really creative ideas that then I can implement. So it's a little outside of the quote unquote financial discussion, but I wanted to use that tweet. My last night journal would have been, I cannot believe Daenerys burned all of King's Landing and killed all of these innocent people in Game of Thrones. Wow, spoiler alert, dude. Uh <laughs> yeah, we'll have to throw that in the beginning, like, hey, if you haven't seen it yet. Um, but I agree. Nah, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, but no, I, I, I like the, uh, the journaling idea, and I think it's less so for me for the creative purpose, but more so, like he was referencing sleep quality, and I think one of the things that keeps me from falling asleep some nights as an entrepreneur is like thinking about all of the things I have coming up, right? So 
and maybe thinking the thought like, oh, I should put that in my calendar and then I do want to pull out my phone and do it. Whereas if I just, you know, had a piece of paper next to the bed, I could write, put this on your calendar on that piece of paper and then wake up the next morning and do it. So I'm with you. I think it's a good idea. I don't tend to have my most creative thoughts right before sleep, but I do tend to have my most important thoughts. So. Well, I think there's another thing, too, of like trying to get away from technology, bedroom at night. You know, yeah, it's easy to pull up a phone, throw it on your Google calendar or whatever, but yeah, to actually just like write it down. But yeah, I mean, you know, you guys, the other three of you now, like my wife's in mental health and you know, there's a lot of discussion around like journaling and, and how like that has benefits and just kind of helping you organize your, your thoughts. And so there's, yeah, there's good benefits to that. Interesting to think about it at the end of the night. So maybe I'll try that. I mean, they say a dull pencil is better than a sharp mind. So if you have just hmm. a bunch of thoughts running through your mind, you know, and, and maybe that even uh, prohibits you from sleeping. I think that's a great idea to stay organized, get some of that stuff off your mind. You can just relax then. And yeah, even if you can come up with a couple creative ideas to think about in the morning, that's a, I like that tweet. I think it's a great idea. Yeah, the key for me is going to be not waking my wife up. So maybe I don't keep it at my bedside table, but I keep it out in the living room or something. She's on a very different sleep schedule from me. Transitioning back to the last topic of the day, the Modern Wealth Survey, also done by Schwab, and I know we talked about Schwab last week, I promise we're not going to talk about them every week. Thoughts on the article that they put out on, yeah, no doubt, maybe they want to sponsor us. Um, The rich, (laughs) what does rich and wealth mean to different people? Any thoughts on either what the survey said or what your individual thoughts are? I think it's interesting just to look at the numbers that when they were polling people of what they thought they would need to be rich and then, you know, compare that to what the actual numbers are. It's kind of interesting, you know, like Gen Y was like, yeah, if I had just under a million dollars, I'd be fine. And it turns out that just under a million dollars, thanks to inflation, just isn't really what it used to be, (laughs) quite literally. I think this is pretty interesting and actually is probably a cousin of the conversation we had last week about financial independence versus financial freedom and you know what is rich maybe that starts to flirt with financial freedom and and it's all at the end of the day my thought was when i was reading this is it's always so subjective of what is rich to someone you know you could have uh, someone with a, a lower income that's really frugal and saving and they could live the best life ever between social security and a couple hundred thousand dollars and other folks they'd burn through that and the you know the first couple years in retirement so that, that's just kind of what i'm thinking as i'm reading through this and and the tweet that i had last week when we were talking about that but it's certainly interesting that the closer you get at least from the, these survey numbers to retirement the more people are saying that you need to have so uh the boomers are saying that you need to have you know 2.6 where uh, millennials are saying 1.9 and then it keeps getting smaller as the younger you are the goalpost is always going to move well and i think in i don't know i think part of it too we're all, we all four of us live in different parts of the country but you know I, I was having this conversation a little bit my wife uh, on the vacation last week while we were driving through and it's like you know $2 million, for example, which isn't really the average, you know, the average is 2.3. So I think a lot of people would say, yeah, $2, $2.3 million is a lot of money, but in Boulder County, that might not get you that far when, you know, you're probably going to need eight, nine $900,000 for a house in Boulder proper. Whereas 
in Metro Detroit, that's probably plenty or plenty of places in the Midwest. But, you know, you go to California and you want to go to San Francisco, it's like, yeah, all right, well, $2 million, like, it's going to be tough. And it doesn't mean people, you know, you can't. So I think everything's kind of relative, too, in terms of where you're living and, you know, and things like that. Oh, for sure. Our, our West Coast tech sector friends are going to have to adjust for cost of living, right? <laughs> You can live like a king on 2.3 in Indy. I mean, shoot. Yeah, exactly. Same in Grand Rapids, Colin. <laughs> yep, yep. You and I, man. 2.3. We're good to go. Yeah. Right. As you say, lo- location arbitrage is such a real thing, as you mentioned, Dwight. Yeah, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to downplay 2.3 million. Is not a big deal. Like that's not what I'm trying. To, I'm not trying to be uppity about it. I'm just kind of saying, like, yes, like location matters. Oh, for sure. I mean, one of the one of the common downsizing opportunities if you're going into retirement instead of getting a smaller house is just to change where the house is but that always comes at the expense of like relationships and family and all those people being nearby to you so it's a pretty hard decision to make at the time well the other thing too is that i think i think this was on hidden brain if anybody listens to that podcast as well i think they're kind of talking about like why nobody feels rich and it's part of like two like also depends on who you're comparing to. So if you're pretty well off or, you know, you're a physician or whatever, and you're hanging out with a bunch of other physicians making 2XU, you'd be like, oh, great. Well, $900,000 a year isn't a big deal. And it's like, well, that's like crazy compared to other stuff. So I think also, you know, depending on who your social circle is can also play a big factor in this. I, I always love uh, making that comparison and then looking at the extremes. It's like, would you rather be, quote unquote, on the poverty line in 2019 living in the United States or would you rather be one of the wealthiest people in the world back in like, you know, the 1800s uh, before vaccines were invented, before we had running water, before, uh, you know, all these things where your life expectancy was like 45, 50 years old uh, or, <laughs> or even less. It, it's just so like you said, it, it's all in comparison to today's day and age. You know, now you could find people that would call themselves, quote unquote, broke and they have an iPhone and that's more technology than the first spaceship that landed on the moon. So it's uh, it's just pretty incredible how our standard of living continues to increase. And uh, it is really it truly is really all relative. Look, man, maybe I'm biased, but I refuse to go back to an era before indoor plumbing. I really value the basic <laughs> necessities yeah. of the modern era. No doubt, no doubt. One other thing that couple takeaways on that. So first I thought it looked interesting from the standpoint of, you know, is there lifestyle creep in there where people start getting more comfortable with maybe living above their means a little bit and knowing what it would actually take to retire and how much maybe they haven't saved. So, so many times people talk about baby boomers and they haven't done a great job at saving. Um, Some have, but some haven't where they haven't saved as much as they need to. So maybe they're realizing, Hey, to retire and actually do the fun things I want to do, it's going to cost a lot more. The other troubling sign I saw was if someone inherited a million dollars today. Did you guys see this? They uh, they said, where were they investing? Oh, yeah, and they said they would uh, buy a house. Oh, my God. And I, I, I did the Michael Scott. No, 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 because it was not a <laughs> real estate. It was not real estate to like then lease out and have tenants. This was a residence. And I, I just could not, I could picture Michael Scott coming out and just losing his mind because a house is a lifestyle choice. It's not an investment. I know I'm going to trigger everyone on this podcast from that standpoint. And we don't have up. enough time for today, but thoughts on if you inherited a million dollars that you're buying your primary residence. Oh my God. That's, God. that's exactly the reason that like lottery winners don't hold on to their money very long. I mean, because they're choosing to great example take the the new inheritance the sudden money that they've gotten 
and spend it on something that doesn't provide them with any financial resources in the future, right? Like people will make the argument, oh yeah, well now you can take, you know, a home equity line on on your house or whatever, and it's like, yeah, but that's accruing debt. Like you don't have any income to pay off that debt now, because you because you invested maybe nine hundred thousand of your million into some really fancy house. It's just not it's not a great play. Um, and I think that when when you look at people who receive sudden money, you should check out the book Sudden Money and reference that a lot, um, helping you make those sorts of decisions. Susan put in a lot of good work on that book. Just think about what you're doing to your income statement, your balance sheet. If you have a million dollars cash and then you go buy a million dollar house, your net worth is identical. You move the cash into a just, just a physical asset. However, now your your expenses, your your income statements, the exact same. Income's the same, but now your expenses have shot up incredibly. I mean, your property tax is going to be huge. Now you got to keep up with the Joneses on every other thing. Um, just everything. Uh, it, it, that's a long conversation, right? We don't have time for it all now. But that's that. I like your point at first, Ian. This is exactly why lottery winners end up uh, going broke or having less money than when they started in a quick comment on the lottery winners so a funny story locally here in indy someone had won a lot of money bought a two and a half million dollar house on geist which is is nearby tore down the house so they could build a brand new like nine million dollar house <laughs> so you know they're making all kinds of wise decisions love it just send them a little flyer Isaiah. <clears throat> hey let's just chat Can you have coffee yeah please <laughs> oh jeez. Help me help you. Anything else you wanted to add to that, Isaiah? I know you said you had a couple more comments. It's just, I'm a fan of, of having a residence and not necessarily renting because I know that you can have that whole, like, is it an investment? It's a lifestyle choice. And it is nice to have kind of your own space and have more room to customize it. But from the standpoint of it being an investment, a primary home is never an investment. I don't care who tells you that they're wrong. The numbers don't back it up. And it, if it is an investment and you want to call it that, it's a terrible investment. The numbers that have been put out are typically, and again, depending on where you're at, location, per Dwight's comments earlier, the average return is going to be between 1% and 1.5%, which you lose to inflation. So, And then also to Colin's comment, you're going to have to fill it with a bunch of crap. And then you're going to see everyone else around you and have to keep up with them. And likely the home is big, so you have to clean it, fill it with junk, and upkeep it to make sure it keeps its value and doesn't become run down, and then you can't sell yeah. it. Just look at Greenwich, Connecticut with all those million multi-million dollar houses with all these hedge fund managers and people from New York City that now they can't sell them. Now those are a whole nother level, but they can't sell these super fancy houses because no one wants them. Well, just imagine buying a small business that makes you no money and you have to go in and clean every day. Like that sounds like a terrible investment. You would never buy that. So then why would you call a home an investment? It's basically a piece of property that you have to go in and clean every day. And if you're living in it, it doesn't pay you anything. So it's not... I mean, it's not an investment. It, it it's it's a great way to make sure that the money that you're spending on housing has some amount of way of coming back to you in the future. But beyond that, it's just not like that's the advantage over renting, right? Is that you can get your money back out of it in a way, but you're not making money on most homes. You get lucky. The, the way I've uh, kind of described it is that your home is a terrible investment, but it is a way to recoup some of your living expenses. So living is expensive no matter what, where you're going to be, whether you're paying a mortgage, you're paying a rent or whatever you're doing. 
Um, but at the end of the day, when you're done with your home, at least you can sell it and recoup some of those expenses. If you're doing it, you know, in a short period of time, you're probably actually going to end up shooting yourself in the foot and incurring more expenses. But, you know, if you're going to be there for a 10 year time frame or something, you're, you know, the chances are you're probably going to end up being just fine and apples to apples ending up coming out slightly ahead. So Isaiah, to your point, go with the, the living reason first. If you like having your own space, customizing it, awesome. Kudos to you. If you're going for the investment idea, Mm, you're kind of already in the wrong mindset. Circling back to our people receiving a million dollars in a lump sum, please, please make sure to sit down with somebody like one of us, maybe not exactly one of us, but like one of us to help you work through that because those decisions can actually change every aspect of your life. And when you buy a house, it's going to cost you a lot to get back out of it. Private REITs, IPOs, annuities, <laughs> perfect, all great options. All bad decisions. <laughs> you forgot whole life insurance in there too, but ah, we'll let that slide. We'll right. Let it slide. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> um, well, I think that's probably good for the episode today. We'll, we want to wrap up and everybody give your summary, your closing remarks, and then we'll call it good. Yeah, I'll kind of close with uh, the IPO, our first topic here of just, uh, yep, this stuff is just another shiny object. Uh, make sure that you're staying globally diversified, you know, low cost if possible. And uh, if, if you have to, you know, scratch an itch, just make sure to do it with a, a very reasonable amount of money and to know that you are no longer, you're getting outside of your fundamental wealth building tool and now you're just trying to speculate and have a little fun. And if you can do that with less than 5% of your money and continue to grow and build wealth with 95, hopefully, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great way to divvy it up and to kind of create the mindset with that. I'll go with touching a little bit on the, the home piece. So in The Millionaire Next Door, uh, which is a fantastic book. The best indicator of consumption is the value of your home for the very reason that when you're surrounded by other people spending money, you're going to be taking on their habits and you're going to want to keep up with them. So if you buy a nice fancy house and you're trying to live above your means, you are going to then outspend and not save at all. Buying a big fancy house is not the solution to being able to be wealthy and independent. Yeah, I think mine is just kind of benchmarking to what. So, you know, looking at different surveys or whatever, like what does it need to be rich and what does that number need? It doesn't really matter. What makes sense for you and, and you're your own benchmark. So just focus on that and, and don't doesn't really matter what some survey says or what the Joneses say. I think that's a great thought to close on, Dwight. Make sure to uh, to make the numbers right for your future, not for everybody else's. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode, and we hope you have a great week. Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.